John chapter 20, and we'll be looking at verses 19 through 23. So turn there in your Bible, and I'll read for us those verses. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19 and going to verse 23. John 20, beginning in 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Thus far God's word. Nicholas Kristof is a Pulitzer Prize-winning op-ed writer for the New York Times who, in recent years, usually around Christmas or Easter, interviews a high-profile Christian. So in the past, he's interviewed uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, Tim Keller, William Lane Craig. But last year, he interviewed Serene Jones, who is the president of the 183-year-old Union Theological Seminary. Union Seminary is located in New York City. It's just a block off the Hudson River uh, between the George Washington Bridge on the north and the uh, Lincoln Tunnel on the south. So it's right there in the heart of Manhattan. And for over a century, Union has been the leader, or a leader, of political and religious progressivism. Now that said, Union does count Dietrich Bonhoeffer among its past faculty members and uh, Frederick Beekner among its alumni, both of whom are highly admired and widely quoted by evangelicals. Union also identifies the majority of its students as uh, coming from homes that are rooted in the Christian tradition. So, when it comes to Easter in general, and the resurrection in particular, one would expect something different from President Jones, whose doctoral dissertation dealt with an aspect of the eminently, biblically sound Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin. Plainly stated, Serene Jones said that the resurrection of Jesus was not a literal event. She says, those who claim to know whether or not the resurrection happened are kidding themselves. Instead, she asserts that the resurrection was symbolic. For me, the message of Easter is that love is stronger than life or death. The empty tomb symbolizes that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. That's a much more awesome claim than they put Jesus in the tomb and three days later he wasn't there. Now the reason that Dr. Jones doesn't believe that the resurrection was literal 
but rather symbolic, is, is, is she puts it, I don't worship an all-powerful, all-controlling, omnipotent, omniscient being. That's a fabrication of Roman judicial theory and Greek mythology. That's not the God of Easter. (laughs) Uh, Well, Dr. Jones, (laughs) that is the God of Easter. And it's the God of Easter because that's the God of the Bible. For all of his spiritual struggles and his moral failings, even the author John Updike understood that if Easter was anything, it was a literal event. And he expressed that belief in a little poem that he entitled Seven Stanzas of Easter. It goes like this. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fail. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a a sign uh, painted in the faded credulity of an earlier age. Let us walk through the closed door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we will have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest, awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. On this point, Updike does not equivocate, nor does the Bible. Nor did Kenny last week. The first point of this sermon was simply this. Jesus is alive. But how can we be certain of the Bible's claim that Jesus is alive? Well, Acts chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that Jesus presented himself alive to his apostles after his suffering by many proofs four of which are contained in the two chapters at which we're looking over the course of these weeks. Last week, Kenny spoke to the first proof when the resurrected Christ presented himself to Mary Magdalene. And uh, this week and in the coming ones, we're going to look at proofs number uh, two, three, and four before looking at the ascension. 
these weeks we'll be looking at Jesus revealing himself to the disciples. Uh, this morning, revealing himself and then commissioning them to service. Next week, revealing himself and uh, rescuing Thomas from unbelief. And then the week after that, revealing himself and then restoring Peter to ministry. Now, to be clear, these passages are not presented as a human interpretation of the empty tomb. Rather, they are presented as God's interpretation of the empty tomb. Just want to do a quick sidebar here for a moment. Um, when it comes to reading the Bible, I don't really like that word interpretation. Uh, it, it, it may have served a former generation well, but uh, I just don't hear it. I think the way some people intend it, because the way I hear it uh, sounds like this. Uh, when, when a person says, how, how do you interpret the Bible? What they're really asking is, how do you manipulate the Bible? How do you manipulate the Bible to prove your point, to serve your end? You know, well, he interprets it that way. She interprets it another way. You interpret it yet another way. It's all just about an interpretation that works for you. No, what, what I like, the word I like is the word understand. How do you understand the Bible? How do you understand this passage in the Bible. And I like that word for a couple of reasons, and in, these, in this order. First, that word understand communicates humility. That is, I don't stand over, but under the authority of the Scripture. That's a beautiful thing about the Scripture. We all even the one at this lectern stands under the authority of Scripture. You know, I preached a sermon a couple of months ago, and, and I, I had one person approach me after uh, the sermon, and another uh, person emailed me uh, the following week, and they both said, I think you got this point wrong. And so I, I looked at it, and I considered it in relationship to the Scripture, and they were right. You see, I don't stand over the Scripture. I stand under the Scripture. I work as we all should to understand the Scripture. Second, it communicates, that word communicates deference. To understand the Bible is to recognize that it's not a book about me. It's a book about God. It's a book containing God's interpretation of himself, of humanity, of human history. So the question for today, as well as the remaining weeks this month, is not how do I interpret the empty tomb, symbolically or literally, but rather how do I understand God's interpretation of the empty tomb? Which brings us to the main point for this morning. And here it is. Belief in the risen Christ, which we see in verses 19 and 20, requires that we respond to his great commission, verses 21 through 23. Belief in the risen Christ, 
requires that we respond to his great commission. Or in short, belief requires a response. So let's begin with verses 19 and 20, where Jesus reveals that he is alive. Now, how do things look before Jesus reveals himself? Not so good, do they? I mean, the disciples are frightened. Um, uh, They've shut the doors uh, to the room in which they've sequestered themselves. They're multiple doors. They're not jammed inside a janitor's closet or something like that. They're, they're They're in a commodious space, multiple entries, but they've locked those up. Why why are they feeling this way? Why are they hiding themselves? Well, because the disciples are not only friends, but followers of the establishment's public enemy, number one, which really wasn't such a bad thing as long as Jesus was held in favor by the masses, right? While he was changing water into wine back in chapter 2, healing a boy on the brink of death in chapter 4, healing a man who couldn't walk in chapter 5, feeding 5,000 out of a single lunchbox and walking on the water both in chapter 6, riding into Jerusalem as a conquering hero in chapter 12. That was pretty good duty for the disciples. But it became difficult. In fact, it became very difficult as Jesus' opponents began to persecute him and multiple times attempt to arrest him and kill him. And so you got to wonder, what are the disciples thinking and saying to each other as they're sequestered in this room? And if they got Jesus, where next? If they did that to Jesus, what are they going to do to us? And suddenly, in the midst of this churning angst, there's Jesus. There he is. Now, I want you to notice how he didn't arrive. He didn't arrive as a disembodied spirit. You know, this this ethereal presence, indistinct, fleeting presence. Though at first, Luke 24 tells us that Uh, Jesus' followers thought they were looking at a ghost. No, rather, he arrived in a tangible body, the kind described by John Updike. Take a look at verses 19 and 20. And if you want to circle some key words here, and I'll point them out along the way, notice they all begin with S, beginning in verse 19. Jesus came and stood in their midst. He stood there. He didn't float around. Oh, hey, wow, is it Jesus? I don't know if it's Jesus or not. It's not an Elvis sighting here. He was standing there in their midst. And he said to them, not in some unknown tongue, but in intelligible words that they knew and could understand, he said to them, and they all heard him say, Peace be with you. Now those are familiar words. Those are words that they'd heard before. Those were words, that was a word that Jesus used in the boat during the storm by which their lives were imperiled. Remember that? Mark chapter 4, Jesus said, peace, and all calmed. 
Uh, or when Jesus said in chapter 14, verse 27, that even though he was leaving, he was leaving them with peace. Not as the world do I give you, said Jesus, but my peace I give to you. And his presence here interprets the power of that peace. So, the risen Christ stood and he spoke. And then in verse number 20, we read that uh, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. What, why did Jesus show them his hands and his side? Well, how did his death occur? It occurred by hanging from his hands, both of which had been impaled by giant nails. So he hung there. And then his side is where the spear was jammed in to prove that he was, in fact, dead. Jesus was dead, but now he's alive. He's alive. And again, it's it's not some Elvis sighting. I was uh, looking on the internet the other day, and Elvis was just sighted uh, on his birthday down in Memphis visiting Graceland. Um, You know how I know Elvis is not alive? Because he's dead. (laughs) And when I was a funeral director back in the day, I read the three-part series in the trade mag, American Funeral Director, about the death, preparation, and burial of Elvis. I've never fallen for any of this Elvis sighting because Elvis is dead, but Jesus was not dead. He was alive. And he was standing there in form and substance and speaking And his unmistakable presence and his powerful pronouncement of peace caused the cloud of confusion and the cloud of fear and presumably the cloud of of shame that lingered after Peter's denial in chapter 18. It caused all of that to dissipate. And it set the stage for one of the greatest understatements in all of Scripture, at least in an English translation. And you can see it there. It says... Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. (laughs) Oh, we're so glad you're here. (laughs) Welcome. No, that's not. The glad in other English translations is rendered rejoice. They rejoiced. Another translation, they were overjoyed. For you oldsters that grew up listening to KHJ and remember the real Don Steele, Tina Delgado was alive. She's alive. That kind of joy. It's the same word that was used um, for the wise men in response to their initial sighting of the Christmas star in Matthew chapter 2. And ironically, ironically, it's also the same word that was used to describe the reaction of the chief priests when they heard that Judas was willing to sell out Jesus for a handful of silver coins. Of course, their joy was only temporary. Well, the disciples' joy was one of God's great gifts on that day and every day since. This was the moment 
about which Jesus spoke, yea, even prophesied back in chapter 16, verse 22, when he says, now you have sorrow, anticipating the cross, now you have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And this moment was testimony to the veracity of those words. And he goes on to say, and no one will take your joy from you. And you can be sure that the rejoicing lasted all through the day and on into the night. So, notice uh, before we move on here the, the progression from the beginning of verse 19 to the end of verse 20. Things go uh, from fear at the beginning of verse 19 to peace at the end of verse 19 to joy at the end of verse 20. 20. Here's what I find especially interesting about that. Uh, uh, on the one hand, nothing has changed. I mean, the disciples are still in danger. But on the other hand, everything's changed because Jesus is alive. He's alive. So that's the first point here in our passage this morning. The second point is this, God interprets for his followers the implication of his resurrection, which is not an historical fact to which we merely and intellectually assent, but rather an historical fact to which we actively respond. And we see this as Jesus commissions his followers to a life of ministry. That's in verses 21 through 23. So first we have here the words of commissioning in verse 21, prefaced by a second pronouncement of his peace, peace be with you. And then these words, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus is no longer the sent one, instead he is the one who now sends and his followers are sent as he himself was sent. This is no spontaneous charge. This is not something that he just came up with in that moment. Rather, this is something that Jesus prayerfully anticipated back in chapter 17, verse 18, and he clearly defined by the over 40 times in this book where Jesus uh, expressly stated that he had been sent by his father and to carry out the ministry for, or rather, of his father. So what was that ministry? What was it that, that Jesus had been sent to do? Well, we find out that he was sent to do a couple of things. First, he was sent to do God's will. In fact, he even described doing God's will as his very food. I was thinking about that on the way over here this morning and, and remembering that time when Jesus and the disciples are famished and they arrive at, I think it's Jacob's well, and uh, the disciples say to Jesus, hey, you stay here, we're going to run into town and get some lunch, which they do. While they're gone, a, a woman arrives at the well to whom Jesus ministers, changes her life, she takes off to tell everybody back home, and the disciples show up. And they say, hey, here's the lunch. And he says, ah, I'm not hungry. And it says there in the passage that, that, that they urged him to eat. And what does he say? He says, fellas, 
I have food you know not of. Doing the will of the Father was like food. It energized, it, it supplied Jesus with the stuff he needed to live. So, on the one hand, Jesus had been sent to do God's will. On the other hand, he was sent to speak God's words. And we see that in spades throughout the book of John. Chapter 3, 5, 7, 8, 12, 14, 17. Toward what end? Toward what end was he sent to do these things? Well, toward the end that the world may believe that he had in fact been sent by God because to believe in Jesus was to have eternal life. Chapter 17, verse 3. To, to believe in Jesus was to have eternal life. You see, eternal life doesn't begin when you die. It begins when you come to know Jesus and believe in him. Now we used to sing that song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine, owed a foretaste of glory divine. If this is the ministry to which the risen Christ commissioned his followers, that is, doing God's will and speaking God's words, then, well, how does it compare with our, our ministry here at Grace as a people or your ministry as a person? Do you think of your life as a ministry? Do, do you think of yourself as having been commissioned by Christ and endowed with his peace two times over? And if not, what currently stands in its place? What is your life all about? Do you know God's word contained in the scripture well enough to do it, to do God's will and to speak it in a way that people can understand it? This twofold ministry to which Jesus commissioned his followers requires that we understand a couple of things. First, God's will is done, according to the old phrase here, God's will is done up close and personal. It's done up close and personal. Jesus didn't relate with others at a distance. He didn't mail it in from Nazareth. Jesus didn't mail it in. He leaned in. Jim Boyce said, we're not really fulfilling the Great Commission until we live with, befriend, love, and enter into the experiences of those to whom we're sent. So to what degree do you identify with those to whom you've been sent? Those in your world. Do you know your neighbors? Do you know their children? Do you know their names? Have you ever invited them over to your house? Do they know that they can count on you for anything? My wife has been a great example to me in this way. We live in a house that's on a corner. It's actually in a T like this. Uh, and there's no stop sign 
here at this tea. And we have a house on the east and a house on the north with children in both. And these children, they love to play uh, with each other and at other, uh, each other's house. So my wife went to the parents in each place and they said, hey, listen, uh, we don't like it that your kids are uh, traveling from house to house by way of the street because at certain times of the day it can become very busy. Uh, we would like your children uh, to travel through our yard. <laughs> and that they have. <laughs> they walk down the side yard and across the front yard. They run through the front yard and up the side yard. They sometimes ride their bike right over our lawn. And in the process, we've gotten to know our neighbors and their children and their toys that they sometimes leave behind and the stickers that they put on the lamppost out in front of our house. And we've gotten to know them and they've gotten to know us. See, as you lean in toward those in your world, you're in a much better place to understand and to do the second thing, and that is to speak God's words. And to speak God's words requires that you open your mouth and say something. When it came to speaking God's words, Jesus' overriding aim was to see men and women believe in him. It was not to reconcile ethnicities. It was not to, to halt injustice. It was not to heal brokenness. Rather, it was to save the world from sin. Chapter 3, verse 17. And in that way, thereby make a lasting path toward reconciliation and justice and wholeness. And did this by opening his mouth and speaking the good news of forgiveness in himself. So in verse 21, Jesus speaks these words of commissioning. And in verse 22, he then speaks the words of enabling or the words of equipping. This is how to get the job done. Take a look at verse 22. He says, and, or it says, and when he had said this, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. I like that. I like that because just as Jesus' ministry began with the Spirit, in chapter 1, verse 33, so does the ministry of his followers. It begins, it carries on, and it ends with the Spirit. In fact, this scene graphically alludes to one at which we looked a couple of years ago uh, in our study of the book of Genesis. You may remember in chapter 2, God breathed on Adam and thereby made him a living soul. And the idea here is that just as, the, just, as the, just as the Father breathed life into all people, so the Son has breathed life into his people, and that by way of the Spirit. In fact, it's in this way that the ministry of doing and speaking God's words are dynamically linked. No, notice what Jesus says immediately after his followers receive the Spirit. Take a look at it there. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. 
Jesus doesn't mean that the forgiveness of sins originates with his followers. No, because that, that comes from God and God alone. Only the Lord can forgive sins. But Jesus does mean that the forgiveness of sins is to be declared by his followers. Each one a priest, ergo the, the priesthood of believers. Forgiveness, it's delineated in and declared by speaking God's words. And forgiveness that is demonstrated by doing God's will. Belief in the risen Christ requires that we respond to his great commission to do God's will, to speak God's words. And it's at this point it would be very easy to bear down and say, so the application to this is roll up your sleeves, uh, get muscled up, and work harder at doing God's will and work harder at speaking God's words. But here's what especially impresses me about this account. I mean, this, this really made an impact on me. What, what made the disciples say yes to the Great Commission? As the Father sent me, so I send you. I mean, where did that lead? Well, it led Jesus to the cross. Gulp. It, 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 it led 11 of the 12 in Jesus' immediate circle to uh, martyrdom. What made the disciples say yes was their belief in the risen Christ. Jesus was alive. The empty tomb was not a symbolic thing. The empty tomb was a literal thing. Jesus was alive. That transformed everything. That empowered everything. That was everything. Belief requires a response, but you can't respond unless you believe. So the question is, do you believe? And if you don't, then the question is, and what do you believe? Yourself, your success, relationship, maybe your pain. You know, some people believe in their pain because it's real. They can feel it. They understand it. My question for you is, how's it working for you? But others of you do believe. And so here's a follow-up question for you. Do you believe what you believe? Because if you do, it should make a difference in everything. Jesus is alive. And that is enough to take us through life to the end and on from there. This is the biggest question 
that one can answer in life. It is the weightiest matter that we'll ever deal with. So at, at the end of this morning, uh, once we've sung another song and Kenny has pronounced a benediction, if you just want to sit there and think about this, feel free to do so. If you'd like to come forward and meet with members of our prayer team, they would be more than happy to talk to you and pray with you through this. But don't let the day end without at least beginning to deal with this matter, the profound matter that Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. We understand that faith is a gift. So for those who do not have it, we pray that you would give them the great gift of faith to see what they heretofore could not see and hear what they could not hear. And Lord, for those of us who, as Keith Green once said, are asleep in the light, help us to wake up and see that uh, you are alive and that you can do in us and through us far more than we can imagine even at this moment. All by your Spirit, all according to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.